Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, come on then, guys. Here we go. Good morning, everyone. There we go. There it is. It's a great privilege to be preaching the word this morning. And I wanted to get the ball rolling by asking a question. Okay. How significant is a happy ending to you? Just a quick raise of hands. How, how significant is a happy ending to you? Okay. Uh, my, 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 friend, my good friend Dale, who's also an elder here, he can't watch a film unless, unless there's a happy ending at the end. He struggles. If he knows the film's not going to you know, end happily, he will not engage with it or watch it or entertain it, which makes for him to miss some, actually some very good films, but at the same time, it also shows what a softy he is as well. <clears throat> when you watch a film then, or read a book, or in order for it to be counted as good, how much of that depends on whether the ending is a happy one? Does it just feel unresolved if those two people don't end up together? Or if the hero dies? Or if good doesn't conquer evil? I've, um, I've seen the Rocky movies now too many times to count. And I already know the outcome of each film. And yet, in those final boxing matches, I'm still hoping he doesn't get knocked down. When he in, and when he inevitably does, I'm, I'm there. I'm willing him. I'm with him. Get back up. Rocky, get up. Fight. And I, even though I know what happens. I love that feeling. I love that feeling of the best outcome being achieved. I put it a slightly different way, okay, for you musicians out there. How many of you want the piece of music to resolve itself? <laughs> I mean, some may call it creative to take a major key and end on a minor chord, intentionally leave it unresolved, but here, to me, that is like a, an itch you've got to scratch, yeah? You want it resolved. It makes, for me... A happy ending when it's resolved. I'm just connecting with different groups of people, Tom. I, <laughs> that's true. I haven't used a football illustration. That's true. So we are um, concluding our preaching series in the Gospel of Mark. And these are the final two chapters of Mark's account. And we're joining the writer in this critical moment of the life of Jesus upon which the faith of every single Christian believer hinges. And it's Benjamin Franklin who said, nothing is certain except death and taxes. The inevitable sorry, observable outcome for us as a human race is that we live, we breathe, and one day we die. And as we look to this historical account, no one at the time is expecting anything different from the life of Jesus. The most convincing way for the Jewish leaders to ensure that the popularity or influence of Jesus could no longer increase was to bring his existence to an end. And yet this would leave the story unresolved. If it stayed just at the death the account of the life of Jesus would end on a minor chord. And this would be a tragic note for the human race because the death of Jesus and nothing else 
would offer no chance of a happy ending. And the purpose of the arrival of Jesus was to enable such an ending to occur. That wonderful verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 and 16. And we're going to be looking at three exchanges that occur in order that past, present, and future generations across the world may not end up on a minor note. And those three exchanges will be good for not good, physical for spiritual, and death for life. So Father, we just thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that it would do us good this morning. Thank you that it is alive as very much as your son is as well. And so God, we just ask, may it shape us and transform us, enlighten us, this morning, that we may know you in a deeper and a richer way. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to read from verses 6 to 15. So Mark 15. And we're going to read through verses 6 to 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The first exchange that we're going to look at is one that we allow and God permits in the exchange of Barabbas for Jesus. It's funny um, how sometimes you you don't realise that you've got something good in your hands until you exchange it for something else. That would have been the shock revelation for Adam and Eve, you know, when they exchanged all the good that they had in the Garden of Eden for what they thought was something better. And all all it took was a whisper in order to make it happen. And Barabbas was a murderer. He was actually also probably a form of Jewish hero. You know, he was a political rebel standing out against the Roman Empire, an empire that had enslaved His people stripped them of the land and the freedom that was rightfully theirs. In a weird way, 
he fitted the mold of what the Jewish people were hoping for, someone who would stand and fight to take back what was stolen from them. The land, the temple, the reputation. And so it was easy for the chief priests to bend the arm of the crowd because Jesus, this so-called king of the Jews, was nothing like Barabbas. It took a whisper in their ear to exchange the life of Barabbas for the life of Jesus. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that the people had exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We, now, we can be quite fickle at times as people, easily persuaded. And I don't say that to point the finger, actually, because if I did, I would really be pointing the finger at myself. Because, you know, I've at times caught, caught, been caught out in being fickle, easily persuaded. But the scripture calls us to consider. Luke 12, consider the ravens. Luke 12 also, consider the lilies. Romans 6, consider yourselves. 1 Corinthians, consider your calling. 1 Corinthians 10, consider the people of Israel. Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Despite knowing what was going to happen like a movie that I've seen again and again, I can't help but wonder, well, what if the people had considered what the chief priests were stirring them up to do? What if for that moment they considered Jesus? They had the truth in their hands and they were so quickly willing to exchange it for a lie that somehow Barabbas would be more worthy of freedom than Jesus. They had the truth in their hands. Now, the reality is, you know, we know that the exchange must happen. Jesus must be handed over to be crucified. Was it the only way it could have happened? I'm I'm not sure. But I do think it stands as a moment for us to learn from. Pilate stood before the people and asks, what evil has he done? What is it that Jesus has done to deserve such a punishment? Of course, the truth is nothing. He has done nothing to deserve the sentence of crucifixion. Yet, that's why he came to take that which we deserved upon him. But the question that Pilate asks is really calling us to consider, to consider this man, to consider his life. Therefore, consider your answer before you condemn him to death. For the non-Christian here, or for that one person who might have you know, accidentally stumbled upon this online, you know, in the greatest offering of love that I have, I want to strongly strongly urge you to consider Christ, to consider Jesus, to not get caught up with the crowd and easily exchange truth for a lie because you might just have something good in your hand that you might want to get hold of. Tightly grip and not easily exchange it for something else. I ask you to consider Jesus. That means take time to think through and investigate for yourself the historical, present, and future significance of Jesus, not just for you, but for all. 
consider and consult, converse with followers of Jesus, discover what they hold in their hand, consult with what the Bible has to say, and most importantly, consult with God himself. Ask of him, consider his voice, hear what he has to say. Whispers or stirrings of something better can enter our ears before we give up what we have that's good in our hands. Let us be mindful of to consider what we might be exchanging it for. And that's the same for us as a church family, you know. That precious moment in Gethsemane teaches us that there are many voices in the room. It's important to find that place, maybe even withdraw yourself so that the one voice you really need to hear is clearly audible. Why? Because in moments of pressing, in moments of vulnerability, we can be persuaded to exchange our current situation or truth for something that feels a little easier. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. Let's not be a people that's quick to change the good that's in our hands. Let's carefully consider what's being offered. We want to be a people that choose Jesus over Barabbas. Jesus withdrew to be with his heavenly father and to consider the path that lay ahead of him. In that pressing moment, Jesus wasn't quick to exchange it for something easier. But in consideration and through consultation, he surrenders himself to the will of the Father and his way. Let's read our next section. So Mark chapter 15, we're going to read from verses 25 to 30. Fifteen twenty-five to 30. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved himself, or saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The second exchange, really, is all about the movement from shadow to substance, from the outline of a sketch through to the full drawing, what God ushers in through Jesus from the old covenant to the new covenant. Here's one for you. I want you to try and think of some examples where you might be wrong and right at the same time. I used to love watching um, Early Fools and Horses. Anyone watch Early Fools and Horses? All right. If I catch it still on TV today, I still love watching it. And one of my favorite episodes is when Del Boy and Rodney, these lovable wheeler dealer brothers from Peckham, they're trying to make it to a fancy dress party dressed up as Batman and Robin. Yeah? <laughs> I really did get there and discover that the party has been changed to a wake because of a recent death. So everyone there is now dressed in black and mourning when suddenly 
Batman and Robin burst in singing the theme tune. Na 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 na. In addition to this, they bump into Trigger, another lovable character, who is also dressed in what appears to be appropriate funeral clothing, but actually confesses to Del Boy and Rodney that he had actually no idea that the party plans had changed. It just so happened that he came dressed up as a chauffeur. <laughs> On the cross, people are passing by and mocking Jesus. And they're using this accusation that was brought against him in the temple courtyard the previous day. And the testimony was this. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that was made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now on one level, this was actually a completely false testimony. Something that had been hashed together in part of a way to this discredit Jesus. It's a bit like when someone is misquoted when that misquote is used to fuel speculation in order to damage a person's reputation. Newspapers, social media platforms, particularly good at doing this kind of stuff. Even 24 hours later from this accusation, the speculation is now just truth upon the lips, upon those passing by on the cross. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. So on one level, it's false information, like a misquote. It has some elements of truth in it, but it had been fashioned together to bring charges against Jesus to condemn him. However, on another level, they had unknowingly pieced together a statement of truth that would indicate an exchange that was about to happen and an exchange that God had prepared and planned, and an exchange that would be accomplished through the cross. It was like those accusing Jesus had turned up to a wake dressed like a chauffeur. They got it completely wrong, and yet they were still right. What Jesus ushers in through the work of the cross and in his death and resurrection is an exchange, an exchange from the physical for the spiritual. To hear that testimony that they used to accuse Jesus again, it says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. God used a bunch of guys who were trying to bring testimony against his son to brilliantly convey truth of an exchange that would occur as a result of the cross. The cry as Jesus breathed his last would signal the end for the physical need of the temple. In verse 38, we read that the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. Now, the curtain separated the people from the presence of God, where previously there was no access for everyday folk. Through Jesus, now there was access for all. And that tearing from top to bottom powerfully illustrates to us that it's God who has done this. This is something from heaven to earth. With nothing that earth could do in order to get to heaven. This was all God's hand. The vision of God 
does not change throughout all time. You know, God's desire has always been to have a people unto himself, a people who he loves, a people who love him, where he dwells in their midst and he is their God. And under the old covenant, the blueprint for that vision looked like this, a physical place, a physical city, a physical temple where the people of God, this physical people group called Israel, would gather and live out their lives as a people set apart for God. They were literally a city on a hill. But like the book of Hebrews tell us, these things only served as a copy and shadow of the things that were to come. What Jesus accomplishes at the cross unveils a new blueprint under the same banner of the unchanging vision God has for his people. A course of three days that would see an exchange from the physical to the spiritual, from that built with human hands to something built with heavenly hands. Physical circumcision would no longer be required. Hallelujah. Because God was interested in circumcision of the heart. A physical temple would no longer be required because God would give his presence to every individual believer. Together they would be living stones, beautifully fashioned into God's house. You wouldn't need to go to a place to meet with God because through Christ God meets with you and through his spirit dwells in you. A physical city would no longer be required because God's city would be wherever God's people gathered together. And God in his purposes would elevate his people to be visible for the whole world to see, just like a city on a hill. A physical land, therefore, would no longer be required because God's new blueprint allowed his people, the church, to be mobile in order that they may stretch themselves to the ends of the earth for this good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross was to be and is to be proclaimed to all nations. What an incredible chapter we get to be a part of. For all those who have considered Jesus, for all those who have put their faith and trust in him, we who love him carry his presence with us, have access to him at all times, get to come together as God's house, gather as his city, and we might, <laughs> that we might be... We might be called to a particular location, but that land becomes precious because of the people in it and the presence of God who is with his people. Let's read from Mark 16, 1 to 7. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Solon brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
see the place where they, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The third exchange looks at the victory achieved alongside the responsibility for us to embrace that victory for ourselves. When I, um, when I think about those Rocky movies, right, there's a very similar formula to each film. The pattern that contains the training, the focus, the strategy, and these life events that go hand in hand in preparing this character for an epic boxing battle. And yet after all that preparation, he typically enters the fight, gets absolutely pummeled for the first few rounds. Film lures you in to think, oh man, he's got no hope. He gets knocked down and he really shouldn't be getting back up. Jesus has spent a lifetime of preparation for this moment. And in the early rounds, it looks like his opponent's going to get a good load of punches in. And you're looking at this moment and the scene of the cross and you're kind of thinking, this guy doesn't deserve this. And yet, here's the crowd, they're loving it and they're cheering it on and they're endorsing this treatment of Jesus. And you might find yourself asking, why doesn't Jesus do something? Hit back. Arrange a cleverer escape. But he doesn't. He just takes it. He soaks it up to the point where he's knocked down. Our final exchange looks at the moment where the outcome is resolved, where the story doesn't end on a minor note, but prepares the way for the happily ever after. To show something of the impact of the resurrected Jesus, I'd like to spend just that, this last bit of time really looking at the way that Jesus resolves the outcome and doesn't leave us without hope for the ending that we all strive for. So we're going to look at four areas just to explore the significance of that at work. Death to life to show us. Death to life to know us. Death to life to clear us. And death to life to give us. The scripture tells us two very important things about sin and ourselves. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That is the incoming payment to those who have turned away from God. It's, it's not great news. But that bad news doesn't stop there because in Romans 3.23 it tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means it's really bad news. None of us are exempt from this incoming payment, this wage of death, because all of us are on this list of sinners, those who have turned against God. However, the resurrection of Jesus becomes good news for us, for it shows us that God has the power to change that situation. God has the power over that sin. God has the power over death. Firstly, Jesus, you know, he sets the standard above any human standard when it comes to walking rightly with God. He walks the life that he has on this earth without sin. And Jesus, of course, is not counted with us when it says, for all have sinned, because he is so much more other than us. That's what it took to remain sinless. 
But even the power of death could not hold him because those precious areas of life and death are in submission to him and the one he was being obedient to, which means God has the power to change our destination to complete that wonderful verse from Romans. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God has the power to resurrect his son, it's good news for us because he has the power to resurrect us also. And resurrection shows God's power at work. So in death to life to know us, we're talking about really relationship with God. The language that Jesus introduces in his time on earth is one of family and friendship. He teaches his disciples to call upon God as father. He talks about his followers not being called servants, but friends. When the temple curtain is torn in two, this paves the way for this accessibility and intimacy with God. The resurrection of Jesus makes way for relationship with him, with God, and allows us to know him in a way that was never permissible before. Sin gets in the way of relationship. Full stop. Jesus took that sin and buried it in his death. And when he rose, that sin remained in the ground. And it showed the power that God has to break free from it. You want to break free from the power of sin? That power is only in Jesus. You want a relationship with the creator of the world? That is only discovered through Jesus. For every believer, God's resurrection power is in, in, God, that's in Jesus is for you as well. The power to break free from sin so that it will not stand in the way of relationship with God and with others. All of us have a debt to God for our sinful behavior towards him. It's a debt that must be paid at the cross. And Jesus paid it in full for you and I. But it doesn't end there because the resurrection shows us that not just God's power to write it off, but God's power to give us a fresh start with him to begin debt free. The scripture tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, when we look at baptism, when we go under the water and we come back out again, it's there to show how our old selves are buried with Christ. And then we're raised in new life with him. If it ended only at the cross and the tomb was not empty, the old might be buried, but nothing new would come. Jesus came to usher in something new. His resurrection paved the way for something new to clear what has gone before like a new bank, like a new book, not new bank, <laughs> new book with blank pages ready to be written on again. And finally, let me read to you this verse from 1 Corinthians 2.9. I heard it in As it is written... 
What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what has God has prepared for those who love him. You know, the death and resurrection of Jesus are all part of the significant stepping stone to prepare a future for all those who put their faith and trust in him. God's power displayed shows that he is the author of both life and death, that nothing is impossible for him. And whilst we may have gone from a, an outline sketch in the old covenant to a full drawing in the new covenant, we also understand from the scriptures that there is also a masterpiece in progress. God is bringing something together that is far more than we can conceive. But if we were to base it upon the goodness that every believer has experienced in God, at the least, we will know it's going to be very good. And that's not to measure by our standards, but by the incredibly high bar that God sets himself. Jesus says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. That is the message for all those who put their faith in Christ. And that place for you, that hope, that future, that eternal life that Jesus came to bring out. That Jesus came out of love for you. is secured through his death and resurrection. Let me um, invite the worship team to come up. Super early, which is good actually, because it means we're going to get plenty of time to respond. Actually, can we stand together? Thank God that the story does not stay unresolved. That our champion does not stay knocked down, but rises to victory. Thank God for the way that he raises us to new life with him, leaving our old selves buried in the ground debt-free, clean slate, hope and future secured. What a way to come back to a place of expressing our worship. What a way to come back and present our thanksgiving to him. And as we do, and there might be more actually, as we spend times in worship, there might be a few things just for or a couple of things for people to respond to. So I just want to start with this, okay? Maybe you're here and you know that you've quickly gone with the crowd. Listen to that whisper in your ear and exchange truth for a lie. 
you've had a, you know, Barabbas for Jesus moment. And I just feel, as I was in, in prayer, I just feel actually that, that God would lovingly speak to you this morning and ask you to consider him afresh. And for Christians, that might mean that, you, you know, that in considering him, in considering those moments that you've made that quick exchange, that might bring you to a place of repentance. You know, Lord, I'm just, I'm sorry. I know in that moment, I know what I had in my hands. I exchanged it quickly. I'm sorry, Lord, for doing it. Help me to consider you. Help me to consider you. And for those who are really just exploring though who Jesus is, this becomes a moment of intentionality for you, I think, to go and discover Jesus for yourself. Consider him. Consider him. Find, you know, consult those around you. Ask of their experiences. Do the research. Open the word of God. Read for yourself. Ask God yourself. Consider him, but don't be too quick to exchange what you've got in your hands. You might just have something good there. Anyway, and I think the other thing that I had is this phrase actually that popped into my head whilst I was preparing, okay? Walking in the goods of being debt free. Walking in the goods of being debt free. I know that in, um, in the CAP offices, Christians Against Poverty in Bradford, this is an organisation that helps people struggle with um, people who struggle with managing their finances. Right? Every time a person gets debt free, they ring a bell and they celebrate. And as I was considering this, I, I was just thinking, you know, there are many of you here that are debt free from sin, and yet some of you are still trying to carry it as if it still exists. God wants you to know that there is a bell that has been rung. God wants you to embrace the freedom that is purchased for you. You are debt free. Now be free to walk in the good of it. God wants you to be walking in the good of being debt free. So let's be mindful that God may... Um, want to speak other things to us as a church family and build us up and shape us. But let's celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ together through responding in worship. He gave his life to death in order to bring us from death to life. In him, the story is resolved and the resurrection of Jesus changes everything.